Welcome back to the Health Tech Pigeon podcast, where we break down the health tech news every single week. To kick us off today, we are talking about smartphones and alcohol. Now, I think we're all used to hearing about the fact that our phones might be listening to us. Uh, I've definitely had instances where I've been talking about something and it's miraculously appeared in my social media feeds. But this story is a little bit different. So it's brought to us from Health Tech World and it says that smartphones and speakers may be able to detect alcohol intoxication by analysing voice patterns. James, have you read this story? Have you got any thoughts? Yeah, it's, it, it seems interesting. I think what they've basically done is they've used, the, well, they've analysed speech patterns and they're basically saying like, hey, this is super accurate. We can really, they said the accuracy took them by surprise of just how much they can tell exactly how much alcohol you've had and, you know, start talking about some use cases for it. I think the, the kind of so what, comes to my mind of like okay what does this mean what does this lead to is your is your car going to be connected so that if you're texting someone or you're speaking to someone your phone's listening and watching and analyzes that for you and then your car doesn't start or i don't know like i i can see kind of what they're saying right that ultimately they want to develop an intervention system they want people to use it they think it will prevent injuries and save lives i get that and look it's good tech it's clearly interesting it's more interesting to me that as a concept you can analyze speech to then infer something like alcohol intoxication because i mean we spoke about this with dom i think last week or week before like when voice is then involved to analyze, to be analyzed and decide or allude to certain conditions or certain preventative things that can be prevented or early indication of degenerative disease or something along those lines. I think that is perhaps more interesting to me because I, I, I just wonder how, I mean, maybe, maybe naively, I think this doesn't happen so much. Perhaps actually, if I dug into the stats, this would actually save a lot of lives. Who knows? But if it is going to save lives, again, you get into the whole like, it would have to what involuntarily just stop your car working. And what does that mean? Is this going to be like an enforced thing that, I don't know, if you're speaking to someone in the car and your speech goes a bit slurred, like the car's just going to cut out until you pull over. Like, I'm, I'm not, I'm not sure. I'm not sure very, very practically how this actually ends up working. But look, listen, as a con as a concept, great. Yes, if if it can analyze speech and and put alcohol at a certain level and and stop your car working, then fantastic. Uh if we find a way for people to sign up to that voluntarily. Otherwise, again, I'm not sure quite how it works. Yeah, I think I think it's an interesting one. And actually the um I think it was the study that the study lead themselves said that um, it could even be annoying, <laughs> um, <laughs> which is is definitely interesting. <laughs> and um, so it says, well, one solution could be to frequently check in with someone to gauge their alcohol consumption. Doing so could backfire by being annoying at best or by prompting drinking at worst. So it kind of feels like they've sort of stumbled across 
what could potentially be a solution, but they haven't quite defined the problem and therefore they haven't been able to identify exactly what the use case might be. And I mean, they're quite open about its its limitations where uh, they talk about, you know, if you're in a bar, obviously there's noise there, but also you may not be speaking if you're walking. Um, and I wonder whether that, you know, the initial thinking behind it could be around the fact that, you know, it's for, it's self-policing where people maybe have had a few drinks or like one drink maybe and aren't necessarily aware their level of alcohol toxicity or, or that kind of thing. The other thing I also thought was interesting was that this is all a very small sample of people, um, only 18 adults uh, of age 21 and above. And obviously everything has to start somewhere, right? But they say that it needs, the, the research now needs to kind of be expanded out to a much larger group of people. And I've just found the, the study here and it's, most of the participants were men, so 72% were men. Age range was 21 to 62 with a mean age of 29, so probably skewing younger. They've captured weight here as well, which I think is interesting because obviously weight, like your body size, is indicative of how quickly you maybe metabolize alcohol and your tolerance and that kind of thing. And it says the mean weight was 76 kg, so... You know, I would suggest that that's not necessarily representative of um, of population level data uh, for weight. But also, they basically said that all participants were either white or non-Hispanic. Um, and it does say in the article that, you know, this needs to be expanded out to a broader range of ethnicities. And it's something that I think we talked about with Junaid a while ago, where he was... Uh, we were talking about technologies that ultimately analysed or recorded conversations with doctors and patients and would transcribe them and how there's that nuance with accents and language that needs to be captured and understood by technologies that are measuring things like this or recording things because it can be recorded inaccurately. And I think that's clearly a consideration here where, you know, the effect of or how different people's voices change under different circumstances and with different exposure to alcohol, I guess. Not necessarily just ethnicity, you know, different gender, different age, different regions um, where people maybe have different accents and things. It would be really interesting to see um, maybe some variation in the data there. Um, so really, I've just created a whole new research proposal um, for this research team. So uh, that would be definitely interesting. But I just... It's, it's, yeah, interesting to me, just connecting back to that conversation that we had with Janaid about how sometimes that, you know, that variation does have a huge impact on the end result and the accuracy and use of it. So all of that, I think, is something that has to be investigated before we, we even get close to seeing it being imp implemented into maybe cars and stopping people driving and all of that kind of thing. Yeah, it's, it's, a, it's a solution looking for a problem, isn't it? And you're right. I wonder at what point in our evolution as a health tech community do we start actually coming down on studies that are 72% white male and are like, is this okay? Is this good enough? And it's not only 72% you know, white male, 29 years old and 76 kilograms. There's, so there's, yeah, a couple of things for me. Like, yeah, this, this definitely feels like a solution looking for a problem. 
um, is the first one. The second thing, yeah, I think the path of least resistance for any study is just have a walk around Harvard and see who you can pick, which is probably, you know, 20 year old white males that are around 76 <laughs> kilos. And at what point is that good enough? At what point is it okay that we can then infer something to a population or infer something about a technology or infer something about this just because we did that? It makes me remember the women's health event that we did at Google where the the data gap is just so real and actually it's just a, it's a huge problem that there just isn't the data on female bodies that allows us to draw the same level of and strength of conclusion as we do with males and i just wonder at what point does this flip into in the same way now, if you put a panel together that that isn't representative and diverse across gender and ethnicity, people will legitimately in the audience ask questions and and make it known that that is not okay. We've got to a point culturally where that's not okay. I wonder at what point we get to that point culturally with studies. And actually, it's not okay to just quote a study. Oh, this study just says. Actually, the study has to say this study was was diverse. This study was, was on this. Or they call, they have to call out this, this study, which is skewed towards this demographic. Okay, we admit it. but that, And that's in the article. I think maybe like things like this, this conversation we're having can, you know, contribute to that kind of movement, I guess, of like... Maybe we should demand more from this. Maybe we should start demanding that if it just says a study, we just assume that it's a non-diverse one. And actually we put pressure to actually say like, uh, and stress the diversity of the, of the group that was, that was studied. Like, I just feel like that's the thing. Anyway, the final thing I want to say on this is that there's a, there's a quote in here which says, imagine if we had a tool capable of passively sampling data from an individual Let's just say that again. Imagine if we had a tool capable of passively sampling data from an individual as they went about their daily routine uh, and surveyed for changes that could indicate a drinking episode to know when they need need help. Uh, Dr. Sofaletto predicts that surveillance tools may eventually combine several sensors, for example, gait, voice, and texting behavior. Now, this for me starts getting into a world uh, talking about passive surveillance is like how voluntary yeah. is this world that people are assuming here dr sofaletto what are you what, what what do you want here do you want passive surveillance of all of these types of tools including the one that you've created here that people don't sign up to that then dictate how we can interact with our physical environment like driving cars. Now, I can accept safety in that. I can absolutely, and nothing to hide, nothing to fear. I can accept completely that surveillance tools, CCTV linked to an ML algorithm analyzing your gate, which is then somehow you know connected via internet to control your car. I can, I can accept it in that extreme, but at what cost to society, I don't know. And I mean that like I don't know. I don't have a particularly strong view because I'm in the category of nothing tied, nothing to fear. I'm not planning on getting into a car. So I don't mind if a CCTV camera is analyzing my gate at the back end and controlling my car particularly. But I do, my, my ears do prick up when I see 
phrases like passive surveillance, <laughs> like the word surveillance at all, to be honest, um, and where we stand as a society on that. Yeah, it's a, it's a good point. And I think it, it raises one of the big questions about, or a couple of the big questions about data that kind of remain unanswered in as much as that like data is such a sensitive thing. It's so personal to people and no one really understands how it's being used. And I think when you introduce these notions that, you know, there are some things that, you know, we know and understand are being captured about our, you know, shopping behavior, online browsing behavior and that kind of Mm. thing. But where we don't, where we haven't been able to give explicit permission for that data, A, to be collected and B, to be analyzed and have total understanding for how that's being used. It's policing our autonomy Mm. where you then get into a situation where it is passive surveillance. That is a limitation of freedom, I think which is obviously a much bigger conversation. But it is a big conversation that I think probably does need to have because I know that there are a lot of people who have fears that that's the direction we're headed in. But equally, there are also lots of people who go to great pains to to help people to understand that, A, that's not where we are, and B, that doesn't need to be where we're headed. But the other thing is as well, if we one of the big challenges with data today is the fact that we have so much, but we don't know what to do with it. And I think when we get to a situation where we're collecting so much data like that, that passive surveillance data of movement, of texting, of bringing all of that together, how valuable is that if we're, if we're not able to utilize it in a meaningful way? And people would maybe be more inclined or comfortable with it being collected if A, they understood how it was being used, but B, also they could see value in it. Um, and it comes back to the conversation about, you know, how health data is collected and shared. Um, that you know, the the research shows that people are far more comfortable with giving permission for their data to be shared if they can see that it's having a positive impact. But as you say, I don't see that there are many people who are going to be really comfortable with being passively monitored. Um, it sounds like a, the kind of thing that you might you might maybe um, you know, a something that might be served to someone who has been convicted of drink driving or um yeah, you know fair. some kind yeah. of criminal behavior as a, as a consequence of um you know an alcohol addiction or something mm. like that or maybe it could be something that someone could voluntarily sign up to if they are a recovering alcoholic something like that and i think in those circumstances that it could be incredibly powerful for people where they are knowingly and able to opt in of their own free will but as you say, I think, like, uh, coming back to what you said about, you know, being very vocal about not bringing together diverse study groups, I do think we have responsibility to talk about that. And I don't see it being any different to putting on a panel of very white male speakers, um, because ultimately what real conclusions can we draw from that and it's such an age-old problem that it's kind of boring now we like a lot of the inconsistencies and challenges we have in our understanding of healthcare has come from not having a diverse study cohort and we by creating new study cohorts that look like that we're just perpetuating a problem um so i actually think that perhaps you know, it's been published in a journal, the Journal of Studies on Alcohol and Drugs, but perhaps there has to be some kind of mandate in in research journals that says 
you know, that's a publication criteria. If you don't have a diverse panel, it doesn't get to be a diverse cohort, so it doesn't get to be published. Um, anyway. Well, either that or, as yeah. I say, like it can be relevant to pick certain groups. So just calling out that it is a certain group. And again, that's yeah. okay. This group, you know, this this was done on blah, blah, mm. blah, 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 just being direct about it. And I think that's okay uh, as mm. well, rather than you often don't want it to be too diverse for various reasons. But if you're trying to draw population level conclusions, you, you should probably... You should probably have a, a, a population representative's uh, sample. I'm going to move us on to our second story of today. And that is uh, a gargantuan report that has been published by the OECD on health. It's called Health at a Glance 2023. And What's interesting for us and the reason we're talking about it is that for the first time, it's actually put a spotlight on digital health and has included a full chapter on digital health. James, you've had a read of this. I mean, we were chatting about this a little bit before. What What is that chapter telling us about digital health in the board? Well, first of all, you sort of said OECD as if I should know what that means. So I've just been Googling it and... I'm not sure that I am meant to know what this means. The the Office of Community Economic Development. I believe that's the OECD that we're talking about. Which is an international organisation that works for better policies for better lives. So healthcare is one of its jurisdictions. There are many others, including climate, economics, all sorts. Um, mm. That brings together experts, basically, from around the world to give policy guidance to, uh, I guess, at global population level, but also at regional level um, and country level, uh, reporting on progress in certain areas and also making recommendations. Fine. Well, I've definitely learned something then. So, yes, it's an intergovernmental organisation with 38 member countries. Interesting. Anyway, yes, I have. I read the article uh, and I've clicked through to the report. So... The big thing here, and the sort of announcement that they made in the article, which is why it's made it into digital health, is that digital health has been spotlighted as an emerging health determinant. Now, I wanted to find out what on earth that meant. So I clicked through to the report and <laughs> thought, oh, I'll have a, have a quick read of the executive summary or something. That is, that is not possible because there are thousands of pages to this thing and that's that might not actually be an exaggeration however had a look at the the digital health chapter and i can pull out a few sound bites here so basically the exec summary covers a few different areas and i'd recommend reading that if you don't have time to wade through the many many pages of it but ultimately you know it's telling us a story that we already know health systems are under financial pressure it's reflective of a challenging economic climate where there are lots of competing priorities and limited public funds available. Um, and that we're globally still really struggling to recover both on a mental and physical basis from the pandemic and the chronic conditions that we're used to hearing about so often, they still remain a huge problem. Um, unhealthy lifestyles and poor environments are causing lots of people to die prematurely and continue to do so. Smoking and alcohol, physical inactivity and obesity are remain um, root causes 
of some of those big chronic conditions we know continue to be an issue. There are still lots of barriers to universal health coverage. There's lots of challenges that remain with accessibility and health inequity. And where digital health is concerned, it's actually quite optimistic. It says that there's a huge potential to really transform health systems. But ultimately, there's a big challenge in as much as many countries around the world or most countries around the world are just not prepared for the transformation that needs to happen. Um, and ultimately, success is predicated on strong health data governance, which we know is it remains a, a huge challenge, not just here in the UK, but all around the world. Um, and coherent approaches to digital security. And I think coherent probably is the 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 word to labor on labor on there. Interestingly, it says that 90% of OECD countries do have an electronic health portal in place, but only 42% of those have an electronic health portal that both the public the public can access and interact with their own data, um, which I think is interesting. It doesn't go into any detail, at least not in the exact summary, about why they're not able to access it. But also it says that around one third of countries have no clinical standards or certification for electronic health record systems, which is a big factor behind why there's such widespread interoperability of health data. Um, That's not particularly encouraging, uh, encouraging reading. It sounds like it's just a bit of a mess, but James, you've got the detail. What, what is it saying? Well, the bit that stuck out for me was this digital health as a determinant of health. So essentially calling out, is a country's digital healthness a determinant of health? And the answer is sort of yes. So the chapter on this basically says, the Lancet and Financial Times published a commission in 2021 And they highlighted that weak governance of digital technologies is causing health inequities and compromising human rights. That is an outrageously powerful statement, that weak governance of digital tech causes health inequity and compromises human rights. That's in the Lancet Digital Health in 2021, um, which is so interesting and so powerful. They do say there's yet to be a study that shows a causal quantitative relationship between digital transformation and health outcomes. But if digital health readiness is a determinant of health, then better health system performance would result in countries or organizations having high degrees of digital health readiness. So they're, they're, I mean, it's, they're coming out pretty strong here. Yeah, and the other thing is that, so the way that they considered digital health readiness was an outline of a checklist for basically digital health policies. So just looking at how much, how many digital health policies they had by the looks of things. And Denmark was identified as, as a leader in digital health readiness, followed by Finland, uh, Korea, Sweden, Japan, the US, and the Netherlands. Um, so seemingly Scandinavia is the place that you want to go for digital health readiness um 
But yeah, they explored whether digital health readiness is is a determinant of health. And basically the answer is yes, we need to be more digitally ready. And I've touched on this a few times on this podcast and the Health Tech podcast, that these kind of infrastructure changes are ultimately what's going to move the needle. Unless we move the adoption frontier forwards, i.e. the point at which technologies can be adopted, the types of technologies that can be adopted, the, the more complex and interesting and wonderful technologies that can be adopted, the better. And until we change how ready we are to adopt those, we can't actually adopt them. We can't actually make any change. So it makes complete sense that digital readiness is a determinant of health. And actually, what I like about that is language, because talking about health inequity, compromising human rights, and being a determinant of health, that puts digital health into the realm of really needing to be sorted out like that because it becomes like quite imperative when you put it there and i think it affects a lot more people when you put it there because if it turns up on in more reports for that reason if it turns up in more conversations for that reason with that powerful language behind it i think a lot more will be done it will be on the radar of a lot more people i absolutely love that they've said all that because i think it really does turn attention to just how important it is and it kind of cuts through a nuanced topic for me, which is that, is it digital health that's actually making changes here? And they've said, no, it's not. It's being digitally ready for those technologies that's actually the determinant of health. I think that's so, so, so interesting. The final thing that they put here is that countries are data rich and insights poor, which Again, they're sort of using that in the same context that ultimately there might be a lot of technologies knocking about capturing data. But unless you're ready for them, you're not going to create the insights from them. Therefore, you're not going to affect behaviors. You're not going to affect change in people's health. So, uh, yeah, a fascinating report. Not that I can say I've read all 1,000 pages, but a fascinating conclusion to the digital health chapter of this of this report. They do say, though, that more work is needed, and they talk about the relationship between this and social determinants of health and social program usage and perspective when it comes to those things. And, and they're very clear that more work is needed to better define and measure digital health readiness because they've sort of used a proxy of these digital health policies for now. But there's correlation here somewhere on something. There's something important here for me. Uh, And I think giving, as I say, that really strong, powerful language to it puts it on a sort of global health to-do list, which I think is really interesting. It says that the Lancet and Financial Times published a commission in 2021 that highlighted weak governance of digital technologies is causing health inequities and compromising human rights. So it links to what you were talking about before, but... I find that interesting because I have a lot of conversations about health inequity and whether or not digital health might be contributing to that. And I'm often, innovators particularly, go to great pains to reassure me that that's not the case. But I'm going to have a look at that. Um, I'm going to have a look at that paper and and dig into that a little bit more, ready for the next panel that I do on health inequity um, to to see what it's got to say, because I I do find that really interesting. When you are doing that research, Jess, for the panel, I I do think that... um... The thing to look at would be 
does a more digitally ready country therefore in this example have more policies around digital health which therefore means that as a country digital health is therefore reaching more people it might be the case that a less digitally ready country country being the important word might not therefore have those policies therefore in a less digitally ready ready country the digital health is only therefore afforded by the more wealthy and those for whom it's less necessary it, that might be the the distinguishing factor there i don't know um but that that would be an interesting an interesting thing to look at yeah definitely i'm i'm for sure going to look into it so watch this space i will bring my findings to uh a podcast episode coming to you soon um but interestingly i've just clicked on the um the paper from the lancet and it was actually the lancet that said that digital technologies are a new determinant of health so it's obviously been co-opted here by mm. the oecd in in this report but it's a it's a it's a good statement it's a good one to interrogate i think but the uh, i think the bombshell that we can wrap that story up with is that the standout statistic of this report is that the world health system still continue to rely on fax machines and hmm. uh, it estimates that 75% of global fax traffic is reportedly for medical services so probably our concerns pertaining to the last story with uh, smartphones listening to us uh, the other end of the spectrum here where we're still very reliant on fax machines. All right. Well, I feel like we've been on quite a journey there and I've definitely got some homework. I don't know about you, James, but um, I'm going to be thinking very deeply about how we challenge researchers uh, to be more diverse in their approach to the studies that they create. And I'm going to be investigating digital health as a, well, digital technologies as a determinant of health and uh, whether or not actually technology might be exacerbating health inequalities. So watch this space. Hopefully we'll have some answers for you soon. And we will see you next week.